0: Welcome to the Byline Times Podcast. My name is Adrian Goldberg. Coming up in this episode reflections on Britishness, Brexit and empire in the company of Byline Times editor Hadeep Mathuru and from Northern Ireland as well with our reporter Mike Buckley. If you've just chanced upon this podcast and don't know what the Byline Times is, well let me tell you, it's an online news site with a monthly newspaper reporting on the connections between money and power and holding both to account, looking at the impact they make as well on British Life. Unlike mainstream newspapers, the Byline Times isn't funded by wealthy proprietors. It exists thanks to you, our listeners and readers. So please subscribe if you can. Go to subscribe.bylinetimes.com. That's subscribe.bylinetimes.com. Let's hear first from Hardeep Mathuru, who's the editor of Byline Times. Interesting story to share as a a second generation immigrant, if I can call you that, Hardeep. I'm one of those myself, so I feel comfortable using the phrase. Um, But tell me a little bit about yourself. If people are aware that you're the editor of Byline Times but don't don't know much about you, who are you? Where did you grow up? What have you done?
1: Hi, Adrian. So, yes, I'm the editor of Byline Times. I'm very proud to be a young woman of colour leading a new independent news site and a platform which really aims to give diverse voices somewhere to express their views and their thoughts and their experiences. So I studied law at university. I then trained as a journalist, worked in local news as a reporter and an editor, worked at national news, worked as a freelance reporter across many different areas, justice, social Affairs and on Byline Times*. I'm not only the editor, but I'm also uh, I still I'm still a journalist as well. So I write about issues such as race, class, identity, Brexit, empire, sort of uh, how our past defines us unconsciously defines us all, and justice issues. I grew up in Southeast London. My parents are uh, immigrants uh, from Kenya. So my dad's from Kenya, he grew up in British Kenya. My mother is from India. They came to Britain about 40 years ago, settled in southeast London. So I grew up there. Uh, actually, the um, I grew up on the street that the British National Party, the BNP headquarters, were, were located on uh, for a number of years. So as a child, I kind of remember looking out the window of our... Of our front room and seeing protesters and placards and police on horses uh, and all this going on yeah it was sort of an interesting place to to grow up actually
0: indeed so although you've done pretty well for yourself now not somebody who was born with a with a silver spoon in the mouth
1: no no I mean I I grew up as I said in, in an immigrant household so uh something that's very common in our communities is education is your passport so my parents instilled very much in me that you know you get an education that's the best thing you can do and so I mean I yeah grew up in southeast London I went to a grammar school and then went to Cambridge University and studied law but um, I didn't really I mean having studied law and not really thought about journalism as a career at that time and obviously my parents are not people who have any, you know, they don't have any connections or know any other journalists or know about journalism. And um, so, yeah, in that sense, yeah, it has been, you know, quite a a journey. And I remember even after I graduated from university and someone said to me, you know, you should just be a journalist. I remember saying to me, it's so unrealistic. And I only recently realised that that was actually quite significant thought to have had. It's quite limiting. I do think it comes from a kind of immigrant mindset which is creativity and sort of uncertain paths and that sort of thing there's a fear around that stuff and and actually that was we explored that last week on Byline Times as part of our Our Lives Matter series which is a whole platform for new writers of colour and we had um, one, one of our new writers exploring this very concept that actually this generational fear um, especially in South Asian communities, of doing something that is a bit more out there and uh, certainly feeds into young people and their mentality of what they think is possible or not.
0: That's very interesting. I've got a friend who is a Polish migrant. She's a, a first generation Polish migrant and her son recently told her, that he wanted to be an actor. Now, she's a hospital consultant, works in oncology, very important job, but clearly delineated professional path as a medic as well, and a little bit freaked out that her son wants to be an actor. Many parents might be, but I think, as I say, as somebody who also has that, being the son of immigrants myself, that, that sense that you would veer off the beaten path that you'd shy away from a, a structured career, I think is something that that scares a lot of immigrant parents who want to see you get your head down and do well uh, and make your way in a in a strictly ordered world.
1: Absolutely. And I did law at university. So I remember after I graduated, you know, even to this day, Adrian, I'll sometimes meet people and you know, they'll ask what my background is, what my career progression has been. And they'll be like, oh, do you regret not going into law and being a barrister? You know, you've earned so much money doing that uh, rather than journalism. And I, I have no regrets at all. And I think one of the best things uh, I heard was one of my professors on the day I graduated. And I kind of said to him, you know, I'm not probably not going to go into the profession of law. And he said, you're not meant to know when you're 18 what you want to do for the rest of your life. So don't worry about it. And I think it, those messages were just not messages I don't think children of immigrants hear in their kind of home environments. Because as you say, trying to veer off and do something different is, I think, seen with fear. Also, I think the, the community and parents feel that they don't know how to guide and help. And that is also a big dynamic in, in sort of Asian communities for family and kind of guidance and that sort of thing.
0: Interested that you said that your parents grew up in British Kenya, not in Kenya, but in British Kenya.
1: Yeah, so my father grew up in British Kenya, and my mother grew up in uh, post-partition India, yeah.
0: For most of my adult life, I haven't really thought much about empire. That may be because I don't come from a South Asian background. You know, my parents are from Nazi Germany and Ireland, respectively. So Empire wasn't something that we that we thought about in recent years, though. It's and in recent months, it's become very much to the foreground. Was it something that you were conscious of growing up?
1: Yes, I, I absolutely, I think so. Something that actually I didn't really learn much about at school, so it wasn't something that I knew huge amounts of detail on. But having grown up with parents who obviously came here from different countries and hearing their sort of sto- stories about their experiences, that there was that awareness. It was interesting because it's become a, quite an area that I'm, I've been exploring as part of my work as a journalist and a writer on Byline Times. And it really emerged at the start of last year. I was asked to give, I was asked to speak at an event uh, about journalism and sort of the, the sort of challenges around it today. And I was speaking with t- two other women on a panel and it was a beautiful, sort of very grand building near uh, Whitehall. And uh, there, there was a s- small audience. And I was asked, I-, I was asked what I think is one of the challenges of journalism today. And I said, well, I think one of the issues is that we, we completely lack context now. in this 24 hour, seven days a week, sort of social media, you know, constant. Uh, speed. Uh, we don't actually stop and provide people context of why things are happening and where, where something sits within a wider historical context and uh, so I just made the comments at this event I said you know we're all for example, we're always talking about brexit. How often do we talk about empire and there was just such a silence in the room, and I had about seventy i would say white. Male middle class men just just looking at me, and it wasn't not in a hostile way. It was just, it was just such silence. I I said this, and it really really got me thinking. In that I, I don't think we talk about empire much. I think it is I I think it is very relevant. When we're looking at modern developments such as Brexit, like you say, I think it is I think it is relevant. And I've always had that awareness. So you know my parents voted to leave the eu so when i was talking with colleagues and friends i think last year after this event had happened and i said well i do know people who voted to leave the eu my parents did and people found this extraordinary and they're like well they're immigrants and so i kind of was inspired to write about it after after that kind of silent response i'd even mentioned the empire and and explore the intricacies of it and i think it like with many things that we're seeing at the moment these kind of fresh discussions which are being held around the black lives matter movement monuments and statues and and hist- historical context and set- setting it straight really i think unconsciously we're all shaped by the past that we have the the country where you know we're growing up in has lived through uh, as well as our own individual pasts. sometimes when we're, we're not even aware of it and i think certainly my parents have been shaped by growing up in countries that were ruled by the british as their daughter i i do i have been shaped i have been shaped by that but even you know people living in britain today who don't have those connections to the empire they're still they're still living in a country that i would say is steeped in you know and in imperialism which is embedded in our culture and our institutions Uh, and therefore you know again they might not be aware of it but therefore this is something that's relevant to all of us and we should talk about it
0: And I think that Brexit brought that to the fore. One has to be very careful not to stereotype people who voted for Brexit. They will have done so from all kinds of backgrounds, as your parents demonstrate, and for all sorts of reasons. But I think that if you view Brexit through the prism, of the mainstream media or those parts of it which supported Brexit, it was very hard to avoid echoes of empire, and imperial mindset, this notion that Britain is a great power, that it's a a singular actor on the global stage. Now, a lot of Remainers would say that's a a fanciful, rose-tinted notion, but I I certainly think it informed a lot of pro-Brexit sentiment.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Adrian. I think, like you say, that the nuance and the complexities of of these issues, I don't think are explored in mainstream discourse. So for example, my parents both leave the EU, because of what I have described and written about is this very interesting love-hate relationship with, with Britain. So my dad grew up in British Kenya, he liked the fact that he learnt english and that he could listen to bbc radio 4 that he read time magazine he actually liked his life there and um, his his family were in, they were indians yeah, from india who were brought to kenya to build the railways there and so my dad grew up there he liked it i mean he would pass you know beautiful you know safari on the way to school you know have days off in mombasa as Brit- you know he really loved it but both him and my mother came to this country, saw it as the mother country. You know, they, they felt British. They feel British. They're proud to be British. And I think that, that was why that dynamic existed. They voted for Brexit because they don't, they don't identify as European. They don't see any real links between Europe and Britain. They feel British. They like, in, in many respects, what Britain has given to them. But at the same time, there's another dynamic playing out, which is, so growing up, I was aware of the empire, because I would be told about the Amritsar massacre at Jallianwala Bagh in the Punjab in India, and other atrocities that occurred, and colonial, the violence, the inherent violence of colonialization, or, or even the colour bar that my dad, as he describes it as the colour bar, had to, had to put up with in Kenya. So I was always informed by my parents that, you know, the British being in India or Kenya was not and it was not just a positive thing that there were things that were really wrong about that, and in that way, my parents also therefore felt that Britain owes people like them its allegiance, not necessarily people who are from Europe, um, but that there's something about having been you know sub- subjects of the empire, if you like, that meant that 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 is that should be recognized. Uh, sort of in a deeper way, uh, and and than sort of Euro- European migrants who were coming, and so it was very complex. You know, one hand they they love they love the they love Britain and they feel very British, but they also feel it did some things that were very wrong, and all of that as a whole, I think helps to explain what's going on. And of course, they're not going around each day, my parents thinking about these, things, you know, thinking of it like that. These things are these processes and mindsets are unconscious often but um it is very interesting and so you know i would i would say i'm very british you know i feel british and i think perhaps yeah british rather than european i do think that's a legacy of having grown up with my parents you know so it's it's very interesting and i think all these it taking a broad brush uh to these these issues is not um is not conducive really to looking at what what's what's
0: actually, what's actually happening. Hadi Mathuru, editor of Byline Times, and you can read more of her work and the excellent series Our Lives Matter by heading over to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com where you'll also find details of how to subscribe to our monthly newspaper. Your support pays for our journalism. Now Northern Ireland is sometimes described as Britain's last outpost of empire. But Brexit has created a new dynamic in the province, which voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union. Mike Buckley is a member of the campaign group Labour for a European Future. He's been reporting for Byline Times on how Northern Ireland is facing up to Brexit. I asked him why he was keen to visit Northern Ireland. So
2: Northern Ireland, it's been, to me, it's been one of the untold stories of Brexit really. Uh, And I find that, you know, speaking as an Englishman, that our national media and indeed our our English media, we tend to ignore Northern Ireland 99.9% of the time. And, of course, it, it was part of the Brexit story, but only in the sense that it made things complicated for Theresa May first and then for Boris Johnson because of the presence of the land border. So there had to be a solution found to that. So we had the story of Theresa May trying to find one solution, and then we had the story of Boris Johnson finding another solution, which indeed was the solution that he'd originally rejected. But now that has been resolved, of course, we've all moved on. But Northern Ireland hasn't moved on and in and in many ways. I mean, one of the people that I interviewed said, you know, we're, we're the kids um, stuck in the middle of a divorce in Northern Ireland because Brexit and the way that it's been dealt with by Boris Johnson has huge implications, not just for their economy, but also for the peace process, and for it just indeed just identity and human rights. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement, you know, gave them the right to be Irish or British or or both. And it didn't matter. And suddenly Brexit brings all of that back into the equation. And in the rest of the UK, we've got no idea how important and how loaded that is for the people that live there.
0: So let's have a listen now then to one of the people you spoke to. This is Daniel Holder. He's Deputy Director for the Committee on the Administration of Justice, talking about the Good Friday Agreement, which was credited with
3: ending the conflict in Northern Ireland. Good Friday Agreement's an international peace treaty. It's lodged with the United Nations. It's binding in international law. It was approved on both parts of Ireland by an enormous referendum, and it's part of a domestic constitutional law. So... You can't understate the importance of it as the legal framework, and the problem is that Brexit conflicts with it in, in, in so many ways. I mean, there were provisions, what the so-called normalisation provisions, where all the infrastructure on the land border was dismantled. Clearly, Brexit can't lead to simply putting all that infrastructure back. That conflicts with the agreement. There were provisions around equality of treatment for Irish and British citizens, within Northern Ireland. Now, clearly, Brexit creates huge differentials now about that uh, treatment and um, very, very crystal clear within the Good Friday Agreement, it states there in black and white that the European Convention on Human Rights will be incorporated into Northern Ireland law. So we will have domestic access to all of the things that come through the the European Convention. So the various threats from the the UK government to try and uh, water down its commitments to the to the European Convention, um, are uh, in the context of Brexit and also in the context of uh, of trying not to investigate uh, legacy issues here, uh, are extremely worrying because that would be a a, a, a prima facie breach of what is an international peace treaty.
2: One of the central victories of the Good Friday Agreement was it that it allowed people to be here in Northern Ireland and not to be concerned about their national identity. Are you confident that legal protections are being put in place for citizens of Ireland
3: and of the UK um, and indeed other citizens as well moving forward? No, we're not confident at all. That's one of the biggest areas of of, of concern we have. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the risk of Brexit hardening borders, but what it's certainly doing as well is it's hardening the boundaries between different groups of citizens in Northern Ireland. We've spent 20 years of a peace process trying to make it whether you're British or Irish being less significant trying to ensure that everyone has equal rights and equal treatment brexit pretty much makes that impossible it hardens the boundaries between british and irish citizens so under the good friday agreement you're supposed to be you can be british or irish or both that's a first principle you can be an irish citizen british citizen you can be a dual citizen but that's meant to ensure key principle of the agreement equality of treatment regardless of that choice and the good news is that as things stand we have a very complex body of law that really ensures across huge facets of, of public policy equality of treatment between British and Irish citizens here problem is that body of law is a EU law and once it's switched off on the 1st of January what replaces it is really really quite scant So there are real questions of identity there then, Mike, which
0: obviously are going to make Brexit more complicated in Northern Ireland than it is certainly in England. What about the economic impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland, particularly with this notion of a a border down the Irish Sea, which, as you say, Boris Johnson initially rejected, but which now appears to be a reality?
2: Well, back in I can't remember what year it was now, seventeen or eighteen. He, uh, you know, he said that no, you know, no British prime minister could accept um, such an outcome, and then indeed walked straight into straight into this outcome because it gave him the the ability then to take the rest of the UK um, completely out of the customs union and the single market, which Theresa May's deal would 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 not have done. Would have kept the whole UK at least temporarily, and probably for the long term in in the EU's customs union. So this is where we now are. So for for the UK, for England, for the rest of the UK, for England, Wales and Scotland, the implications for the rest of us are huge, because that means that our economic future is going to be that much more difficult and the damage will be much more consequential. But for Northern Ireland, it puts them in a very difficult situation because legally speaking, they're in the UK customs territory. But in reality, they are still in the in the EU customs union and single markets. And this puts the border down the Irish Sea. One of the main implications of that is it massively increases the the costs for cross border trade. So you know, for example, one shipment, um, one one container going from Wales or or England. Across the sea to Northern Ireland, thousands and thousands of these things go back every day. The the added cost per container will be in the region of six thousand pounds. Now, if you're Sainsbury's or Tesco or you know or another business or supplier, and you're doing that hundreds, hundreds of times a day or thousands of times a day, that's huge added cost for your business. That cost will be transferred onto the Northern Irish um, population, they're already the poorest people in the UK. Um, so they they don't have the capacity to um, really to shoulder those costs. But indeed, some businesses will just look at the balance sheet and just think, it's not in our interest to do this anymore. We're not going to make any money out of it. And they will just stop doing it. And that will mean shops will close. It will mean there'll be shortages in Northern Ireland. It will mean that there'll just be less choice.
0: Well, on that, really interesting conversation you had with Aidan Connolly, Director of the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium talking about the practical issues for Northern Ireland associated with trading post Brexit.
4: Our economy here in Northern Ireland has got better, and not because of not just because of twenty years of the, of, of peace process, but because forty years of the EU. The example I always give, and, and I give it because it still amazes me. You can get a lorry with vegetables. We have peppers, all that sort of stuff, and it will leave the south of Spain, and you can tell within a two-hour window when that will arrive at a supermarket in Ballymena or in Oma or in Eskilling. Now, that level of detail and that level of smooth transition for a just-in-time supply chain, that's a thing of, of wonder and a thing of beauty, but people don't realise that for that to happen, there are no tariffs, there are no checks, there are there's alignment, there's security agreements. All of this is built upon... Foundations, and what we're doing with with Brexit at the moment is removing those foundations, and that's where the the, the friction we've comes been, in. We've been knitting all these agreements, and indeed knitting our economies together for
2: you know forty seven years or whatever. it yeah. is. and we're ripping that apart in a very very short space of time, and of course making in the process of making life very very complicated for all the businesses that are involved, and indeed making life more, life more complicated and potentially more expensive. Yeah, well, Northern well. Ireland,
4: Northern Ireland's like the kids who get hurt in the middle of a divorce. That's that's the, you know the, I think it's quite an emotional way to put it, but that's that's the way to put it.
0: So that's Aidan Connolly, there, director of the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium. And into this particular mix, as well for Northern Ireland post Brexit, you have the fact that it is already one of the most deprived parts of the UK. This is John Patrick Clayton, who is from Unison Northern Ireland.
5: Our schools have serious resource issues. You have head teachers asking parents to Supply toilet rolls for schools, because they've their their budgets are so so squeezed. We've hundreds of schools now who are, who are who are in the red in terms of their budgets. We've got a health service that is hundreds of millions of pounds short this year. That, that needs they think over six hundred million pounds to both stand still and to meet the rising demand that is there, but also to give it some some breathing space to try and move forward a transformation program that that was announced a number of years ago that has that has struggled in the absence of our, of our politicians and struggled with, without investment. And then we have some shocking statistics in terms of our health service, in terms of waiting lists. Our waiting lists here are considered to be the worst in the UK. We have extremely long waiting times across all parts of the health service. We have a suicide rate, which is the highest in the UK. We've had more people who have died as a result of suicide than died during our conflict. So if you, if you take a point from the Good Friday Agreement, up to now more people would have died as a result of suicide do you know
2: why that is i mean i read that this morning and it's, yeah. it's a it's, it's frankly it's a shocking statistic
5: i certainly think and, and we we would say a lot of this comes back to inequality the legacy of our conflict absolutely is is a, is a major factor there because the areas that are that tend to be worst affected by problems like poor mental health suicide self-harm poverty poor educational outcomes many children having to be taken into care, for example, if if those are all kind of indicators of the health of an area, then areas of Northern Ireland that were most affected by the conflict tend to be the areas that have the worst statistics when it comes to this, and they also tend to be the areas that are the poorest. So a lot of this goes back to kind of the, 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 the weakness of our economy, the fact that we have a generation of people who, whilst they may have been very young when the Good Friday Agreement was reached, and even the older generations as well, have not felt any. Would not. Would struggle to say that I felt any huge benefit in their lives over the last twenty-two years. Yes, we don't have the levels of conflict that we had. Although in some areas, paramilitarism is still a very, very real presence in people's lives. But we haven't made huge strides economically, socially, um, and and many of the of the the imbalances and the inequalities that are there in our society have never really comprehensively been dealt with.
0: Mike, the reality is that you might wish Brexit had never happened. It has happened, and it's happened for Northern Ireland as well as the rest of the United Kingdom. That's just a fact, isn't it? But I suppose with Northern Ireland, I guess there's this underlying concern that somehow it might drive people back towards conflict.
2: There is the danger of that, and indeed people over there that I spoke to were obviously very, very cautious in speaking about it because nobody wants to uh, kind of be a harbinger of doom, if you like, and nobody wants to, um, you know, stoke any tensions. So there's a great, there's a great degree of caution when speaking about it publicly and rightly so. And indeed, there are reasons for hope. Stormont exists now. Stormont is sitting again. But there are also reasons for concern because it does bring back this question of identity and things like rising poverty and rising inequality again will stoke those tensions and indeed loss of trust in the British government
0: will also you know just kind of raise concerns across across all sides. On that subject let's hear from Katie Hayward who's an academic and writer based at Queen's University in Belfast.
1: I think we're at a really critical moment in Northern Ireland where it's very important that Westminster in particular, the British government, is seen to respond to the commonly expressed concerns of people across the divides in Northern Ireland. Because politicians here, the MLAs, they have to be able to show, the proof that democracy works, and that some of them they will find compromise, find common identification of Northern Ireland's interests, and that Westminster responds, or the government responds. And if it seemed to be hopeless, then that's a really worrying condition for trying to sustain a peace process here. Sobering
0: stuff from Katie Hayward, academic and writer based at Queen's University, Belfast, talking to Byline Times reporter Mike Buckley. And you can read Mike Buckley's Brexit dispatches from Northern Ireland only on the Byline Times website. Just head to bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll also find details of how to subscribe from as little as £29 per year. Remember, we're not in hock to any business or government interest. Your subscriptions pay for our journalism. Head to bylinetimes.com for more details. And thank you for listening.